Before we start the show, I just wanted to reach out and say that if you are loving listening to The Truth Prescription as much as we are loving making it, please subscribe to the podcast. Hit that subscribe button. Rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and iHeartRadio, to name a few. And come check us out at www.thetruthprescription.com to get more insights and info, because the truth will set you free if you let it. I try to help them understand that if you really want to know what they actually believe is to watch their patterns of behavior. And eventually we're going to go back and we're going to figure out what their intentions are and the beliefs. And as we already said, your beliefs can always don't always tell you the truth. So intention drives attention, which drives decision-making, which drives your behavior. Gentlemen and ladies, brothers and sisters, people, whoever you are and wherever you are, welcome to the Truth Prescription Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sekou Gathers, and each week I interview successful people from around the world and discuss how accepting the truth can propel your career and help you live a life of gusto and purpose. No mantras, no gimmicks, just the truth. So close your eyes and open your ears, and let's get into this. Come on. Good people, welcome back to the True Prescription Podcast. I am your humble host, Dr. Sekou Gathers. And today I'm excited to talk to Dr. Nick Molinaro, who's a psychologist He's been a psychologist for approximately 30, 30 plus years. His specialty is actually clinical psychology, counseling, sports psychology, and executive assessment and performance. Uh, he's worked with athletes from the NFL, uh, NBA, and he's most known for his work uh, with golf with the PGA. One of the, his, his favorite quotes, which uh, when I saw this, I, I smiled. I said, oh, he's a perfect guest. What you believe becomes your truth and not of a truth. <laughs> right, Dr. Nick? <laughs> That's correct. That's correct. Right. I, I often talk about that, that there's a big difference between your truth and the truth. There's sometimes a very wide difference between those two things. But anyway, Dr. Nick, welcome to the show. Thank you for um, having me on. Absolutely. We had a few technical dif- difficulties, but we moved past that. So Dr. Nick, you know, I'll just do a quick intro for the new listeners. The reason I do this show is because I believe that the truth is the only tool to true freedom and true happiness. And that's in business, that's in life, and even in sport. And it may be a a, a hard pill to swallow initially, but just like all those athletes that train and train and train, when you hit that game-winning shot at the end, it it all makes it worth it. So, Dr. Nick, tell us about, you know, either something personal or professionally that was a truth that you either uh, ignored or were not aware of that once you accepted it, helped you to break through to the other side. Well, I'll go back you know, into my history, this comes from my father. Yeah. And neither of my parents graduated high school. And my father would always say to me, you can do anything anybody else does. Maybe not as good, but you can do it mm. anyway. So when I was a young man, I didn't know exactly what that meant. As I started to develop and found that I became more successful, it was really based upon that truth that there's very few things that I can't do, you know, maybe not as well as anybody else. And so that's been a prime motivator for myself, you know, having graduated in the bottom 20% of my high school class and very, very low SAT scores Mm. to now go on and have, you know, multiple masters, doctoral degree, teach doctoral students, postgraduate training. 
So what I didn't know was the truth about my abilities. And yeah. I wouldn't even look at that in terms of intellect. I would look at it in terms of my ability to utilize myself well. That was a truth I had no understanding of when I was mm. younger. Oh, wow. That's big. So you, you, you had to kind of grow into it over time through your life experience. Yes. You know, pretty clearly I held myself back early on, you know, after I graduated college from going on further in graduate studies and then trying to pursue the career that I ultimately was able to develop. But it was based upon that concept. And I, I didn't understand it until probably my late 30s. Mm, yeah, that's, <laughs> I think that's when we all start to understand everything. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> all right. Excellent. So just understanding your true potential. Yeah, that's that's important. OK, let's jump into some questions. Your website talks about kind of like what we're what we're saying, unlocking potential, right? In your practice, what specifically actually locks up people's potential? And if you were to sort of synthesize all the reasons that different people give you, what would that be? Erroneous beliefs. Mm. You know, so if you look at human behavior, there's two basic processes that influence most of what we do, what we believe and what we feel. Okay. Now, if you actually look at the definition of confidence, they're based upon those two processes, your belief in your abilities to do something, your feelings and your abilities or both of those. However, you know that your beliefs don't always tell you the truth, right? Right. Whether they're prejudiced, people will actually go to war, die and kill other people based upon what they believe, in spite of the fact that it's not the truth. Yeah. Weapons of mass destruction. Right. And so (laughs) when you look at feelings, it's the same phenomenon. So when we talk about this whole truth thing and things that are holding people back, it's based upon things that are erroneous. Mm. So, for example, you know, working a lot with uh, parents and coaches and high-level performers, and they all talk about increasing one's confidence. Mm. And if you believe that that's actually going to work and it doesn't, what happens? They're going to be disappointed, yeah. Yeah, interferes, it interferes with performance all the time. Got it. Okay. And, you, you know, you also talk about mental skills training, right? You do mention that. How can folks, you know, that work with you benefit from that? And how can it help one become more aware of like the truth or what's real? I'll give you a very clear example, Dr. J. I had seen a high jumper in high school and she had jumped five foot four in her junior year of high school. And her senior year, she was jumping five foot two. Hmm. So she came to see me one day before the county. She had an hour with me and she thought I was going to work with her on her confidence. And I said, no, let's just look at the truth about your performance. So right. she showed me her video, and she showed me that as she raised her head up, her butt would drop and knock the bar over. Mm. And I said, is it true that you can keep your head flat? Yes. We went over that for about 45 minutes, did imagery, a couple other techniques. The next day, she jumps five six. <laughs> so I didn't deal with it all with confidence, which is what she was expecting. Yeah. And coaches, you know, are similarly expecting, you know, when people come to see me, I'm going to help their confidence increase. It's the last thing I really pay attention to. Yeah, it's a simple example of paying attention to the truth. Can you keep your head down mm. when you're going over the bar? Right. Yes. So go do it. <laughs> so mental skills training is really about training about what you focus on. Is that right? You're exactly correct. I yeah. mean, all of my work is based upon where your attention is at the time. You know, your attention can be distracted and, you know, sometimes you want that to happen. So if you're a linebacker, you want to be distracted to some degree, but you have to be able to bring your attention back very quickly. Same thing with a quarterback. Got it. Yeah, not so much linemen. 
Yeah. So yeah, so we look at uh, we look at twenty mental skills, and we assess those. And most of the work is based upon what I would describe as attentional shifting, you know, blocking out distractions, intense focus. And you have sort of like baselines from high performing individuals, right? That you use to test where someone is. So like, let's say for me, if I'm if I test a three and and Brady is a ten, you would say you've got a, a, a long way to go <laughs> to get to his level. Yeah, and, and but we would be looking at uh, you know twenty different qualities. So you might be a ten someplace where he's a three. Right. So yes, we do have the norms, and so it's pretty interesting that when I've gone to work with national champion teams, you know we have the norms for them. So I know wow. what players should have in order to be you know national champion in that specific sport. Part of success in, in sport, and obviously you've dealt with a lot of this in, in just life is goal setting. And I wanted to talk about that. Is there a secret sauce to this or is it as simple as just kind of figure out what you want to do and write it down? I don't think it's as simple as that. <laughs> I think I think it begins simply as that. So mm. uh, so the answer to that, yeah, there is a there's a couple pieces of secret sauce here. So there's three elements of goal setting. One is the outcome. Mm. What do you actually want to achieve? And outcome goals are always in comparison to where you've been and where you want to be. So I want to be number one in the state. And I was number one in the state last year, but I want to be number one in the state again. So the outcome is always kind of a little bit more future-oriented. We then move down to performance goals. Those are things that we can actually measure. So if you're going to be the state champ in whatever sport, what do you have to do besides win? You have to train with regularity. And so we actually start identifying the very specific things that the athlete needs to do and are measurable. And then we always look at the process. What are you actually doing internally? Yeah. You know, psychologically, that gets you to the next step that gets you to your outcome goal. Right. Got it. Got it. And uh, my last question for you is, talk about what it, you know, what makes athletes great in business. I was looking at a, a uh, article, reading an article recently where the, the manager of this company was basically saying that, he only hires athletes because, well, I'm kind of answering your question for you, but they understand competition and they have, they understand what it is to work in a team. But from your, you know, you, your standpoint and in, in working with different athletes, what do you think makes them great in business and what can sort of non-athletes take from their approach? Well, first of all, I think that when we make statements that are generalized, like athletes are really good in business, clearly not all athletes are good in business. Sure, sure. But I don't, I'm not so sure that people see that. So I think that there's an idea that if you're an athlete, you can be good in business. So let's look at it from the other perspective. What are the essential qualities in order to perform at your highest level? Being competitive is one of them. Now, the only true form of competition, in my mind, is sport. Business is competitive, but if you have more money, you make more money. <laughs> Academics, you know, is biased, right? So if you take a look at some of the studies, blonde-haired, blue-eyed children score higher in elementary school than dark-haired, dark-eyed students. Mm-hmm. So you start looking at you know factors that are like that, and then people are looking at academics as a true place of competition. So when you go into the basketball court, you go into the football field, baseball, tennis, whatever you're doing, there are regulations there and somebody else is monitoring to make sure that you're following the rules. Got it. And so the reason I, and I do talent acquisition, I know that you've seen my work in business, but I consult with, you know, major international companies on talent acquisition, helping them select 
C-suite individuals. Yes. I do look for athletes for that reason, whether it's Division One, Division Three, high school, but which shows things like you were mentioning, that they're competitive and that we also look at grit, which we can spend a little time with. But when you look at that whole competitive nature, they're, they're continuously competing on a daily basis. What is grit? Go into that a little bit. How would you describe grit? Well, I'd refer to Dr. Angela Duckworth. She did a great TED Talk, and she's from the University of Pennsylvania. So she will identify several aspects of grit. I usually only identify three because it's easy to count three. And so that's passion, perseverance, and a low need for positive reinforcement. Mm. So you can find a lot of athletes that are very passionate and a lot of athletes that persevere. But the athletes who need a lot of positive reinforcement, the only time they're actually getting a sense that they're going to compete well is if they're feeling good or if people are saying positive comments to them. Right. And that's dangerous. Very. Because there's an overuse of positive reinforcement. And that becomes, you know, I think one of the problems with what's going on with youth today. Yeah, the crutch. Yeah. I like that. I like those three. When you said it, I thought about somebody like LeBron James who's like criticized ridiculously, but continues to you know compete at a high level year after year. Well, let's jump into uh, yes or BS. I'm going to make a statement. You can say yes or BS, or if you want to expound on why you think, think that, you can or not. It's up to you. Okay. Are right, you ready? Yes, sir. All right. Number one, golf is the most mentally challenging sport to play. Yes. Mm. Okay. Why do you say that? It's going to take me a little while, but I think you're going to get the message. (laughs) The only time golfers experience competition is when they're in competition. Well, that sounds ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But if you are a football player, every time you're out on the field, you're competing with a guy who wants that position. Yes. Every open sport, you know, we have teams and other people are trying to stop you from doing things. You have the experience throughout your entire lifetime of doing that of where you're out on the field or you're in the gym or you're weightlifting or doing these things and you're competing with the rest of your teammates. Now, you might be real close soul brothers, <laughs> but you're still trying to beat that other guy so you could have his position. But golf doesn't have any of that experience. One of the most difficult things to do is to train golfers to be competitive. And of course, I have all the answers. I can tell you how we do that. But so golfers really don't have that experience of competition on a daily basis as most other sports. That's one reason. The other thing is that there's nothing else you do in life like golf. You don't spend 40 seconds in your pre-shot routine getting ready to make a shot and then three to five minutes go by before you have to do it again. Mm. Yeah then you have to do that again and again. I mean, if you if you shoot par and you swing the club 72 times, it only takes you 90 seconds to do that in a four and a half hour round competitive golf. Yeah. What are you doing the rest of your mind? Yeah. But there's not another thing that you do in your life that's like that. That's one of the reasons why, those two of the reasons why I think it's the most mentally challenging. All right. Number two, children are more responsive to psychotherapy than adults. BS. Mm. Okay. Number three, optimal performance may not always translate to winning. True. Okay. Number four, business sport life success is 99% mental. Yes. 
<laughs> Number five. I think I know your answer to this one. Intention drives attention. Uh, you must have been reading up on me. <laughs> yes. Talk about that a little bit. Sure. So I'm sure, Dr. J, that you have read a paragraph, and after you've read it, you don't remember what you've read. Yes. Okay. So now I get to ask you questions. If I said to you, now, in this very next paragraph, which you've never read before, I want you to find the two most important comments or aspects of that. Would you read that paragraph differently? Of course. Okay. So your intention drove your attention. And simply doing things like that, so that's part of the you know the skills work that I do is attentional shifting, is to shift your attention to where it needs to be. And so your intention is always driving you in your behavior. Now, a good portion of your intention is subconscious. You don't get up each morning and say, hey, should I be loyal to my friends or to loved ones? Um, should I be honest today? You don't ask yeah. yourself because your subconscious intention drives you. Now, when we look at performance, a lot of the athletes that I'm seeing, and even business individuals, I try to help them understand that if you really want to know what they actually believe is to watch their patterns of behavior. And eventually, we're going to go back and we're going to figure out what their intentions are and the beliefs. And as we already said, your beliefs can't always, don't always tell you the truth. Right. So intention drives attention, which drives decision-making, which drives your behavior. Number six, performance pressure, or what I'm going to call anxiety, performance pressure can be cured with practice. Can I qualify that before uh, I answer it? Yes. So the issue about curing anxiety uh, is very complicated. So there's like about six different forms of anxiety. So the studies show us that we can identify which children at the age of 11 months are more prone to anxiety. Now, if an individual is prone to what's called low thresholds of responsiveness, it doesn't take much for them to react in high intensities of reaction. And if they're risk-taking, that's not going to be such an easy thing for description of being able to cure someone. Mm -hmm. If anxiety has been more kind of learned as a result of an injury or an accident or a crisis, some of which I'm sure you've been around, <laughs> Phew, that then we might be able to modify those. But I would still go back to what I would describe as threshold of responsiveness. And so when you read my book, uh, you'll see us talk about things along those lines. You know, trying to help parents and coaches to understand that just because you practice it, that doesn't necessarily mean that the anxiety is going to go away. Yeah. However, if you're not prone in those ways I just described it, and you have a very specific treatment regime, you'll see the anxiety reduce remarkably within a relatively short period of time, maybe four to six weeks. Okay. Hey, that's not bad. Yeah. Number seven, the last one. I know you're going to like this one. Confidence is the main ingredient to success. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's a real big BS. No Talk doubt. about confidence. Well, as I go back to the definition of confidence, it has those two basic factors about beliefs and feelings. Yeah. And beliefs and feelings don't always tell us the truth. But I'll tell you a story. I was, you know, I've been, I've done some work on the Golf Channel and some other radio stations. I'm going to be on Fox 5, the Sports Extra, this coming Sunday. But another network TV interviewed me and wanted to know if I could do something other than golf. And they said, yes, but 
if we get to confidence, like if one of your commentators says, oh, he dropped the ball, his confidence is going low. I'd say, are you kidding me? He's a professional athlete. <laughs> right. So the point I'm making about this confidence, it is a belief which is not true. Do you play golf? I've played golf. I don't, like I have a buddy of mine who goes, you know, he plays three times a week. I don't know where he gets the time, but... <laughs> Okay. Well, what sport do you play? Are you play anything any, with if, any consistency? I mean, I, the, the, the sport that I played the most in my life is ba- would be basketball. Okay. That's what I played growing up and, you know, in college and med school. You've been on the free throw line, right? Yeah. And my guess is you've had the confidence that ball's going in. Confidence. That's right. Confidence, baby. Confidence. Yeah. It doesn't always go in. No. Confidence is a very poor predictor of performance. Grit is a better one. And self-efficacy is a much better one. This is the whole thing about truth. That's why I think you and I, you know, we were ordained to have this conversation. (laughs) (laughs) So like when I said to that high jumper, the truth is that you can keep your head back and jump over the bar. Let's not talk about confidence at all. Just go do it, which I describe as Nike therapy. Just go do it and pay attention to the truth. And that's what I do with all my athletes. We have them identify you know, 10, 15, 20 truths about their performance. That's what they're paying attention to before they get out there in competition and before they practice every day. Got it. Got it. Okay. I like it. I like it. Well, Dr. Nick, that's all I have for you. Tell the, the people how they can connect with you, learn more about what you do. You know, I know you do some, some coaching, um, how they can find out about all things Nick Molinaro. So you can go to my website, drnickmolinaro.com or drnickgolf.com. And in the future, you'll see performanceinmind.com, which will integrate a lot of what I'm doing in the business world with sport as well. Got it. Perfect. Okay, fantastic. Well, Dr. Nick, thank you so much. Uh, I think this was a great conversation. Short and sweet. I think the people got some good info. I will sign off as I always do. The truth will set you free if you let it. Mm -hmm.